looking at some interesting jobs. You know, I'm kind of at the point where I'm pastoring full time and I'm enjoying that. So I'm not really looking for another job. But if I were, here are some interesting jobs that I found um, that maybe you might want to apply for. So the first one is a dry paint watcher. How many of you think you could do that? A dry paint watcher. There's a job posting up in England for someone to literally just sit and watch paint dry. Not a joke. Uh, The second one was a professional sleeper. Now, I hope none of you apply for this during the message this morning, but a professional sleeper. Um, Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, The third one is a full-time Netflix viewer. I know a lot of people who are applying for that one, a full-time Netflix viewer. It's literally just watching through all of their content and rating it and seeing what your opinion is on it. Uh, Maybe some of us were trying that during the snow. I'm not sure. Uh, the fourth one is one that I'm not personally interested in, but maybe you would be. It is a dog food taster. It's literally a person to eat different kinds of dog food and try different bones. I know my dog would enjoy that, but I don't think I would personally like that. The last one by far though is my favorite. Um, it is a scuba diving pizza delivery man. And there is a, and I'm not joking about this. There's an underwater hotel in Florida where apparently they need a guy to, Put on a scuba diving suit and deliver pizza to that hotel. So if you're interested, um, I think you can apply online for that. Uh, All of these were very interesting job positions that I'm guessing would have some very unique qualifications. We've been talking about someone named Titus who had a very unique job. You know, he wasn't exactly a pastor, even though he did pastoral things. He was actually a delegate sent by Paul to the island of Crete where he would establish churches and appoint men to be pastors and elders over those distinct churches. And we've been reading Paul's letter to Titus and his instructions to him on what it means to build a healthy church. Now, last week we did something kind of unique. We looked at the entire book of Titus in one sermon, trying to go from start to finish to see what is the message of Titus. And this morning we're just going to focus on these four or five verses that make up the what we call pastoral qualifications. It's talking about the office of pastor, the office of elder, and how there are some very unique and special qualifications for these men. You know, in our society, they like to promote things that are new and things that are exciting. As far as churches are concerned, people who are gifted or people who draw some kind of interest. But as we look at God's word and we see what the qualifications are for pastors, I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit blown away by them. There's a lot less of an emphasis on the giftedness or on even the charismatic nature of a person. And there's much more of an emphasis on his character. Did you see that as Tim was reading that passage for us this morning? That several times his character is more emphasized than maybe his giftedness. And as we look at our world today, there have been many, many pastors who have fallen from ministry, unfortunately, and who have had issues in ministry, and their giftedness has taken them to a place where their character couldn't keep them, as some people would say. They might have been very gifted in ministry. They might have been a good preacher, a good um, musician, some kind of giftedness that they had, but their character was not able to keep them there. And so as Paul writes to Titus, he gives Titus some instructions. This is the people that you should look for. These are the men specifically in your church that you should appoint to the office of elder. So as we think about this sermon this morning, I want you to understand that even if you're not a pastor, even if you don't think you'll be part of the leadership structure of this church, there's an application for all of us as we read this. 
there should be some points for all of us, man, woman, however old you are, however young you are, there are things that we all need to learn from these qualifications. This isn't a sermon that just I need to hear or men in this church who are interested in leadership. There are things we can learn from this passage that apply to all of us. And so as you're thinking about it, think about some of these questions. First of all, how do you view leadership? How do you, what do you emphasize when you think about the role of a leader or a person that God has put over a church? As I said before, too often we worry about their giftedness and we hope they are gifted. We hope they are talented and blessed by the Lord. But do we look at their character? Do we look at who they are, their integrity? Secondly, ask yourself, how do you measure up to these qualifications? Again, I don't think everyone in the room is qualified or able to be a pastor or an elder for a variety of different reasons. But all of us should look at these qualifications and say, how does my life measure up to this? What are areas that I need to work on? And lastly, as we read through these together, I would ask you to keep me accountable and to pray for me that I would measure up to these standards correctly as a pastor. And so with that in mind, let's look at these pastoral qualifications. And the whole point of what I want us to see is this, is that a high calling has a high standard of living. A high calling has a high standard of living. You might ask yourself, why so many qualifications? Why all these things that the pastor must be? Well, it's a high calling. It's reflective on the nature of God. And so because it's a high calling, it has a high standard of living. And so with that in mind, we look at Titus. And before we look specifically at the five verses we're going to read, I want to backtrack a little bit and make a few comments about the first four verses mainly because I failed to mention anything about them last week. We know that it's, it's Paul's um, customary greeting to the church. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says who he's writing to for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. What have we said is part of the makeup of Titus. There's sound doctrine. There's something you should believe and that affects how you live. And there's also good works as well. And he's saying even in these first couple of verses, there's a way that you understand the truth and that affects how you live. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So he's writing this to people who are believers, who have the hope of eternal life. And then notice what he says about God. He says, it's the God who never lies. Now we know this is true, that God never lies. But why does Paul say this to Titus? Well, if you think about Crete, they worship Zeus, who was well known for all of his different activities, but he was a little bit mischievous according to their traditions. He often lied. He often deceived people. And so what is Paul saying right from the outright? God never lies. God is not deceitful. God is not trying to trick you, but he is honest and true. God who never lies promised before the ages Began And at the proper time manifested in his word through preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our savior to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. So saying who he's writing to and who he's writing for, which is truly Jesus Christ. Now, let's ask some questions about our passage this morning. Some questions that a healthy church needs to Answer. And the first question is this, we see it in verse 5, why do we need qualified elders? 
Why do we need qualified elders in the church? And I think we see the answer for that in verse 5. Look with me. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. We first of all see that elders set things in order. Paul is giving Titus the reason why he left him behind in Crete. Remember, they visited the island of Crete in Acts 27 on one of Paul's last journeys as he's going to Rome. And as people were saved on the island of Crete, they needed someone there to oversee the church structure, the church planting that was going on there. And so Paul chooses Titus. And he must have been a man of pretty high character because this was an important assignment for Titus to do. So Titus is there and look at what he commands him to do. He says that you might put what remained into order. That's an interesting word that Paul uses. It means to fix what is broken or to restore something. The very root of the word has the word ortho in it, which is where we get the word for orthopedics or orthodontist. That has the idea nowadays, not then necessarily, but nowadays it has the idea of fixing teeth or making teeth straight. I don't know about you, but I've had pretty decent teeth for most of my life. But when I was a child, I had a tooth that was kind of out of order. So they had to take it out and they had to fix everything else that was in my mouth so that it would be straight, so that it would be in order or together. Now, as a kid, when they took that tooth out, I didn't realize this, but they put a whole bunch of medicine and laughing gas and things like that so that I wouldn't feel it. So as they took the tooth out, I didn't feel anything. The problem was I'd never had a tooth pulled out before. So when I went to pull out another tooth, I thought, oh, it's easy. I'll just yank it out. And I didn't realize how much that was going to hurt after I did that. But orthodontists set things in order, people who fix teeth. So Paul's telling Titus, you need to fix what is broken in Crete. We know from reading the rest of the book that they were a difficult people. They were people who lied. Their leaders lied. They were people who had a lot of issues around them. And so Titus needed to set things in order. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, the next thing he tells them to do is to appoint elders. Now, there's a lot of questions over how do these two phrases connect to each other? Is he supposed to set things in order and appoint elders? Well, it's a little bit unclear, but I would at least say this, that they are somehow connected. That the way he's supposed to set everything into order is by establishing church leadership. And so he says, appoint these things called elders. I just want to say from the outright that I believe from scripture that the word elder, the word pastor, and the word bishop are all talking about the same office, okay? I don't think they're three different offices, but they're three words that are used interchangeably. So so Paul is going to do this in these five verses. He's going to use the word elder, and then later on he's going to use the word bishop or overseer. And it's three words talking about the same office of pastor, as we would call it, or elder. But elder is what he's going to use in this passage, and so we want to try to use that term as we're looking at it. The word elder comes from some traditions in Jewish culture. It was men who were older, most of the time over 50. They were appointed to give instructions or guidance to the king on how to run the country. And so Paul in the early church borrows some of that terminology. They have men who are appointed as elders in the church, but they have a little bit of a different function as we're going to see. Paul says you need to appoint elders in every town to set things in to order. So why do we need qualified elders? Well, they set things in order. 
They establish order in the church. You see, I think every pastor, every elder, whatever you want to call them, has three primary functions. They teach the word of God publicly. So they teach in the sermon. They teach in Sunday school. They teach even in counseling and talking to people. Um, Secondly, they shepherd the flock of God. So they oversee the church spiritually and how different members are doing. Sometimes it looks like counseling. Sometimes it looks like going on visitation, visiting people. But they shepherd the flock of God. Then lastly, there's the administration of the body. They help the church set things in order. They help administrate the body of Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about. We need elders to set things in order. Now, I say all this. There's one other thing we need to talk about, and that is, what's the role of the congregation? Is the pastor just a dictator? Is the pastor the only one that makes decisions? Well, obviously, the question, the answer is no. So what does the pastor do? Well, he helps lead the church as they make decisions in the church, right? We still have congregational voting. We still have members of the church who are part of making decisions as the church. But the elder, the pastor, helps lead the body of Christ, as they do what God has told them to do. So we see that elders set things in to order. But secondly, elders are part of God's plan for church leadership. Notice what Paul says. He says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This was Paul's custom. This was what Paul did on his missionary journeys. People would be saved. He would establish a church there. Then he would try to establish church leadership for the congregation while they were in that place. Look with me at Acts 14, just briefly. Acts 14, this is one of Paul's earliest missionary journeys. He goes to a couple different towns. um, And when we get to verse 23, we see this. So he's been in Lystra, he's been in Derbe and Iconium. And then in verse 23, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting... They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this was part of Paul's practice, that he established elders. Now, a lot of different churches have different belief, beliefs on elders, whether or not you should have more than one. And I always think it is good to have plural elder leadership, more than one elder in a church. And a lot of churches, including our own, have what are called lay elders. So there are men who are pastors, who are paid by the church, There are also lay pastors as well who are appointed by the church who work um, another secular job, but they still serve in the same capacity as an elder. And in our church, we have that even within our constitution, that as we grow and as we develop, we might appoint men who are lay elders to help guide and lead the church as well. And I'll mention more about that later in the sermon. So elders are part of how we set things into order. Elders are part of God's plan for church leadership. We must continue to cultivate healthy church leadership here in our church. So what does that look like? That looks like finding men who are qualified, finding men who meet the pastoral qualifications for elders and for pastors. It means training and developing men who could serve in these capacities, who could, find, who could function both as a lay elder or as a paid elder as well. But it also means all of us working together as a church of God to try to reach the lost and try to build a healthy church here. And so with that in mind, I want to look at another question that we see in this passage, and that is, how should an elder treat his family? How should an elder treat with his family? And look at verse 6 with me. If anyone is above reproach, 
the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. First of all, we see that the first real qualification is that he is above reproach. And some of your Bibles might say blameless. He is blameless. What does that mean? It means to not be able to have a charge raised against you or to be free of accusations. And that word is actually describing all of the different qualifications that are going to come later on in the book of Titus. So Paul's going to give a lot of different qualifications, a lot of different ways the elders should live. And above reproach or blameless describes how you should be in each of them. So as he's faithful to his wife or the husband of one wife, he should be above reproach. He shouldn't be able to have anyone make any accusations against him. As he raises faithful children, he should be above reproach. He shouldn't be able to have any accusations made against them. That's what Paul is talking about, that we have men who are blameless or above accusation. Now, we know that no pastor is perfect. I'm not perfect. Pastor Reed's not perfect. No pastor who's been here is perfect. But pastors do need to be above reproach or above accusation. And so, first of all, he should be faithful to his wife. The text says the husband of one wife. In Greek, it reads the, a one-woman man or a man of one wife. And this raises a lot of questions and a lot of things that we have to wrestle with in the text. First of all, does that mean that a pastor has to be married? I'm not just saying this because I'm not married, but I think the answer is no, okay? I think the answer is no. And why do I think that? Well, I think that for a couple reasons. First of all, what I think he's trying to say is that um, if a man is married, he should be faithful to his wife, that he should be faithful to the one that God has for him. And so if he's married, he's faithful to his wife. If he's not married, then I should still be faithful for when I do get married or if I am never married and am just single. But I should still be faithful and I should still be blameless. Also, he says later that it talks about the elder's children. So if you're going to say that he needs to be the husband of one wife, you would also have to say that he would need to have children as well. Which I don't think any of us think this text is trying to say. Rather, Paul is trying to say that men who are appointed to the eldership should have a lifestyle of faithfulness if they are married, if they are unmarried, to their families. They should treat their families well. So if you have a wife, and he says you should be faithful to your wife. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't have been unfaithful to her. But Paul is arguing that this man should be faithful to his wife or the husband of one wife. Another question that comes up often that's a little... I think a little trickier for us to answer is that can a man who's been divorced become an elder? There's a lot of different experiences with this and positions on this. And here is what I will say, because it's a very challenging subject. I will say this, that divorce is different for everyone. We believe that to be true, that everyone has a different experience when it comes to that topic. There's a variety of different beliefs on it. I do believe that the Bible has some exceptions or some room in Scripture where divorce is permissible. And I want to respect that and understand that. And now when it comes to an elder who has been divorced, either staying as an elder or becoming an elder, I think you have to treat every situation differently. Okay? So I don't know if I would always say no, but every situation is different. What do I mean by that? Well, the qualification is not just him being faithful to his wife, but is he above reproach? Is he irreproachable? Is he blameless? 
And so can a man who's been divorced be above reproach as an elder? And I would say this, that I think it depends on each different situation for that to be so. And so that's my personal opinion. You might have a different opinion on it, but I would not say that I rule that out necessarily as I'm thinking about a man being an elder that he, if he has been divorced. So he should be faithful to his wife. He secondly should raise faithful children. There's a lot of interesting questions for us to answer as we look at these first couple qualifications. He should raise faithful children. And there's a reason I say it that way. And the reason I say it that way is because the ESV, which is what I'm using, says his children must be believers. And this is a big question that comes up too with the qualifications. Does a pastor have to have children who are saved? And I would say the answer is no. Why do I think that? Because you can't control your kid's salvation, can you? You might raise them as godly parents in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but that does not mean they will be Christians. That does not mean they will be believers. And so the word that he uses for believers here is actually pistis, which means faithful. And so I would interpret it as he should raise faithful children. So what does that mean? Does that mean that his kids are just off the hook and that they can do whatever they want? No, he should raise them in submission. He should raise them to be faithful under his authority while they are under his house. In Timothy, Paul says that he should manage his household well. He should be a good father who raises submissive children. That does not mean they will be Christians. That does not mean that they necessarily will be believers. Only God can control that but he will raise faithful children who will submit to him. Well, what does it mean to raise faithful children? Well, I think he answers that in the rest of the verse. He says, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So not open to the charge of debauchery, which means wildness or wild partying. So these are different accusations that your kids could have raised against them. So your children shouldn't be known for these things while they are under your house. Now, after they're gone, after they've moved on, it's between them and the Lord. They are an adult now. But while they are under your control as a pastor, then your children should not be known for those things or have any accusations brought up against them in those things. Secondly, insubordination. They shouldn't be rebellious. They shouldn't be always trying to rebel against you. Now, I will say this, that I think these are lifestyles of doing these things, okay? So can a pastor's kid sometimes be rebellious? Well, if you've worked with teens, you know the answer is yes, because that's kind of the nature of raising teenagers, isn't it? That they are going to be rebellious sometimes. And I don't speak of that from personal experience, but from watching other parents raise teenagers. And I think you would all say the answer to that is yes. But the pastor should manage his household well, raising his children in submission and in faithfulness. This is how he should treat his family. And how the pastor treats his family is important. I was reading this week about A.W. Tozer, who I have a lot of respect for, who I have a lot of admiration for. And some of you have probably been blessed by his ministry. He wrote the book, The Pursuit of God and the Knowledge of the Holy, two books I've read that I've been personally blessed by. But he was a bit of a complicated man. He was faithful to his wife, but sometimes he neglected her and his children tremendously. And they didn't rebel against him necessarily, but he didn't always give them the time that they should. And after he died, his wife remarried to another person. And listen to what she said. She said, I've never been happier in my life because Aiden, which is A.W. Tozer, 
loved the Lord, and we all know that. But Leonard Odom, her new husband, loves me. Think about that for a moment. A man who is faithful to God, and we respect that. And I'm not trying to talk bad about him from the pulpit at all. But he loved God, he loved the Lord, and I don't doubt that. But he was not always giving his wife the attention that he should. A pastor and elder must be faithful to his family. There is number one priority. They are his number one responsibility. So as a single pastor saying this, I've thought a lot about how does this apply to me? You know, in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7, he talks about singleness and how being single has allowed him to do more ministry, has allowed him to be open to ministry in different ways than he'd ever thought or than maybe a married man could. So for me, I try to be faithful to the family that I have and the different relationships that I have there. And also trying to hold myself above reproach, being blameless, both in my purity and in other qualifications as well. You know, as we look at this passage this morning, I recognize that for our church family, there are a lot of different family dynamics, aren't there? There's some of us who are married. There's some of us who are single. There's some of us who are newly married. There's some of us who have been married for a long time. Some of you have lost a spouse due to being a widow. Some of you have been divorced, and I recognize that. We all have different life backgrounds that are part of our history, and I want to respect that. I want to understand that as I talk about this, that this is not always an easy subject to approach. So what am I trying to say? That we recognize that all of us have different backgrounds, but that all of us can still be used by God in this church. And I truly believe that no matter what your background is, that God can still use you and work in your life in whatever plan he has for you. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, how there's different parts of the body of Christ and how God has made each part unique to work together as the body of Christ for his glory. When I was in college, I had a professor who got married when he was 40. He was a missionary and he traveled the world really sharing the gospel with people and he didn't get married to his now wife until he was 40 years old. And me being a single guy, especially towards my senior year when I knew I would probably be single entering ministry for a while, he would always try to talk to me. And at first I didn't really appreciate it because he was kind of trying to pat me on the back and say, hey, it's okay to be single. And I didn't really want to have that conversation. You know what I mean? But I remember he brought me into his office one of the last days of my senior year And he really encouraged me with this. He said, as I was just thinking about my place in ministry and how God was going to use me, he said, you can't control any of that, can you? You can't control if you're married, if you're single, where God has you in life. But you can be used by God where he has you for his glory. Do you believe that this morning? Wherever God places you, do you believe that God is going to use you in his church for the plan that he has for you. The elder should be faithful to his family, but we should be faithful to our families as well, no matter where God has us in life. Then he gives us some qualifications or some characteristics that should not define the elder. Some things that should not define the man of God. There are, I believe, five of them. And we see that in verse 7. We see him, first of all, use a different term. He starts talking about the overseer. Or maybe your Bible says bishop. 
Someone who administrates the body of Christ. That's really what that word is talking about. He again says that he is God's steward. That he has been placed by God as a, in a stewardship role over the church. All of us, it's good for us to remember that we don't own the church, that I don't own the church, but we are placed there as God's steward, watching over it for him. Then he says he must be above reproach. He uses that word again, above reproach. I think, and he's saying that again to define these specific ways that he should be above reproach. First of all, he should not be arrogant. Maybe your Bible says self-willed, but my Bible says arrogant, and it kind of has that idea that he shouldn't seek his own way. He shouldn't be about his own agenda. Well, whose agenda should he seek? Well, obviously the Lord's and God's will for the church. Have you ever met somebody like that who's always kind of pushing their way forward? They have to have everything their way, and it's got to be perfect because they think it's the right way. An elder should not be arrogant or self-willed. He shouldn't ignore the opinion of others. Now, he shouldn't be a people pleaser necessarily or have a big fear of man issue, but he should welcome the opinion of others. He cannot be arrogant. Pastors must show humility and not be proud. And all of us as the body of Christ would say that's true, that we should not be arrogant. Secondly, he shouldn't be quick-tempered. Quick-tempered or someone who is hot-tempered is maybe what your Bible says. Someone who loses their temper quickly. Do you know people like that? I think all of us do to a certain extent. People who just, you don't know when they're about to snap or when they're about to lose it on someone. This shouldn't define the man of God. This shouldn't define the elder. But he should be someone who is gentle. In 1 Timothy, Paul actually says he's not violent but gentle. He follows it up with that. The outside world is watching pastors, is watching men who lead the church, and they should represent God well. And a person who's always on edge, who's always about to lose their temper someone, they're not qualified to be an elder. Now, I'm not going to say that a pastor may not lose his temper at some point or may not get angry. I'm not going to say that sometimes I don't get angry myself. But this should not be the lifestyle of the man of God. This should not be the lifestyle of a pastor, that he's quick-tempered. This should not characterize a believer either, that we are quick-tempered with each other or with the outside world. Thirdly, not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. We all know what this means. He shouldn't be given to much excess in wine or in strong drink. Um, we know we've all heard sermons, I'm sure, on the water purification at that time and how drinking was prevalent because of that. But Paul still makes the point, and it applies to us today, that the pastor should not be known for being a drunkard or for having too much to drink. In my personal life, I practice total abstinence from this. I don't want to be caught around alcohol, mainly because I don't like the smell of it, and it just doesn't appeal to me at all. But for some men, this can be an issue, and so the pastor should not be a drunkard. And he's really emphasizing more than just that, but he's saying the pastor should have self-control. The pastor should be sober-minded. He shouldn't let anything that the world can give him affect his judgment or his discernment he should have a sound mind and so while maybe for me i don't have a tendency to want to drink do i have a sober mind do i have a mind that is focused on thinking clearly not a drunkard next not violent 
Some of your Bibles might use the word pugnacious, which is a great, strong word. As an English teacher, I love hearing that word because it's such a great descriptive word. But we don't really know what it means sometimes. It means someone who quarrels or someone who is quick to fight. I think, Tim, your Bible said a striker, right? Someone who is quick to get into a fight or a bully. The pastor should be known for having sudden outbursts of physical violence. And I'm sure you as people listening to a pastor preach would say amen to that. You don't want your pastor to be violent towards you, right? He shouldn't be impulsive in how he deals with people physically. It also means that he shouldn't use his physical nature to try to get his way, to try to bully people. He shouldn't try to intimidate others by what his body is like. Again, First Timothy says, not violent, but gentle. He should be known for the opposite of that. And lastly, he should not be greedy for gain. Some of your Bibles might say, not fond of sordid gain. He shouldn't be in ministry for the money. Now, you might say, well, I don't know a pastor that's in ministry for the money. Well, they are out there. He shouldn't be fond of gain that comes from other evil sources. He should be content with what God has given him. These are things that should not quali- that should not define the life of a pastor. These five characteristics. They shouldn't define men who are in leadership. I can remember a couple years ago, I was substitute teaching for the school system that my mom worked in. And I would take different sub-jobs based on how well I thought the kids would behave in that certain job. And it was a pretty rough school district. And there was one day where I took a sub-job for an art teacher. Now, if any of you have seen my handwriting or know anything about me, I am not an artistic person at all. And so I was not really qualified to be a substitute teacher for that position. And so I can remember trying to help them with the art project that they had. And I really just kind of threw up my hands. And of course, they give you specific instructions for them. But I don't know if I've ever felt more unqualified for a job in my entire life because I'm not really an artistic person. As we look at leadership, and one of the questions I mentioned at the beginning is, how do we view leadership? What things do we emphasize? What things do we value? As we look at leadership, what do we value in the life of a pastor, in the life of leaders? Men who we would appoint as elders, men who are pastors of this church and of other churches. What things do we value? Are they these qualifications or are they other things that are maybe more appealing to the outside world? None of these things should characterize the life of a pastor. None of these things should characterize the life of a Christian. So as we read through this list, is there anything that you're struck by? Is there anything in your life where you think, man, I really need to work on that, to not be as arrogant, to not be violent, to not be quick-tempered? Is there any way that God is speaking to you in these? And then also, would you pray for me as well? You might say, well, what good is prayer going to do? Well, it's about the most important thing we can do, isn't it? Pray for me that I would be above reproach in these areas. Paul gives some characteristics that should not define the life of an elder or the life of a pastor. But then he also gives some characteristics that should define a godly elder. And there are more of these. There are about seven of these. Look with me at verse 8. Instead of being those things that are evil in verse 7... In verse 8, he says he should be hospitable. The Greek word actually means stranger loving. Someone who loves opening their house to strangers. 
Don't you love people like that? People who are just so warm and friendly and welcoming to people who are not like them or who they don't know. The pastor should be hospitable. He should open his home to others. He should reach out for the good of others with no expectation in return. So many times I think about my own life. Am I hospitable with people, new people that I meet? Or am I trying to get away from them? Am I trying to just do the bare minimum of what I think I should do as a pastor? Am I being hospitable? This is something we all need to remember as a church, being hospitable to the world around us as we proclaim Christ. Secondly, a lover of good. This means he loves everything that is good and righteous. You know, there's so many people in our world today that love evil, who rejoice in evil things and the things that they watch and the things that they listen to and the things that they fill their mind with. Does the pastor love good? Does he rejoice in righteousness? With so much evil, just in the news even, can we rejoice in seeing what is good? Thirdly, it should be self-controlled. Again, this idea of self-discipline, controlling your emotions, not being angry, not being impulsive, but keeping your emotions in check, holding yourself accountable for these things. It can also be translated as sensible or prudence, someone who uses God's wisdom in how they make decisions. Is the pastor rash? He should be self-controlled. He should have control over his emotions. doesn't mean that a pastor won't be emotional sometimes. It doesn't mean that we won't all be emotional at some points. But the pastor should demonstrate self-control over his life. Fourthly, is he upright? Your Bible might say just or um, righteous, maybe. It can be translated as those things. But does the pastor live within God's standard of righteousness? Is he an upright man devoted to the Lord? God has a standard of how we should live. We see this in scripture, and Paul is asking here if the pastor lives according to that standard of righteousness found in scripture. Similarly to that, he says that pastors should be devout, holy, living within God's standard of holiness. And why is this so? Because God is holy, isn't he? We serve a holy God who is set apart from sin, who is not like us. And while the pastor will sometimes sin, while all of us will sin at different points, we recognize that he is to be holy, he is to be set apart in his life. Remember, a high calling has a high standard of living. Next, he should be disciplined. Disciplined in his life, having control over his personal life. And his public life, the word has the idea of an athlete who's training his body, being disciplined over himself. So the pastor must be disciplined over his life, having the right priorities, having the right passions. He should be well disciplined. And then lastly, look with me at verse 9. He must hold forth or hold firm, maybe your Bible says, to the trustworthy word as taught. He should be a man who holds firm to the word. What does that mean? He holds tight to it. He's close to the Bible. He's a man of the Bible, a man of the book. We have nothing 
greater to say. I have nothing greater to say as a pastor. We have nothing greater to say as Christians than the word of God. So as I preach, as I teach, I pray that God works through me to reveal what his word actually says to us. It says we should, the pastor should hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. We see why he needs to hold firm to the word so that he can rebuke others who speak against it but also the, so that he can give instruction in sound doctrine. My senior year, I went on a whitewater rafting trip with my classmates. We all went on this trip, and I don't do well. I was telling Linda earlier, I don't do well with gravity sports and things that are fast. I'm not a big roller coaster person, but they convinced me to go on this with them. It was at the Wilds, and we were the only boat that didn't have a guide. I don't know how that worked out, but my friend Logan, who had never been whitewater rafting before, somehow he got roped into being our guide for this adventure and so we almost flipped our raft we didn't flip our raft but on this big rock we almost flipped over as we were going over the current and I can remember holding tight to the raft not wanting to let it go and I don't think I've ever held on to anything as tight in my entire life because I'm not a very good swimmer and I didn't want to go over the side of it and you can see that of course As the raft is kind of tipping over, it didn't tip all the way over, but as it's tipping over, that's of course when they took the picture. And so you can see in the picture, everyone else falling out, and I am holding on to the raft as tight as I can, trying not to fall out. And there were two people that didn't fall out of the raft. It was the guide, my friend Logan, and then you can see me hugging this raft, trying to stay in, and praise the Lord, I did. But when I think about holding tight to the word, we are clinging to it, we are not wanting to let go of it. This should be the lifestyle of a pastor. This should be the lifestyle of a Christian as well. So as we close this morning, as we think about this passage, it's not an easy thing to talk about sometimes. It's not an easy thing for me to talk about as a pastor because in other jobs, you can see a job description if you're applying for it, but I don't know very many other jobs where their job description is in the Bible for everyone to see the things they should be qualified for. But this is the inspired word of God, isn't it? And this is how men should live who are called to ministry. Because a high calling has a high standard of living. So as we close this morning, I've got a few questions. First of all, do you hold the leadership of our church to these standards? Do you hold myself to these standards? Do you keep me accountable in all of these things? Men who want to be in lay eldership, men who want to be pastors, do you hold them to these standards? What do you value in leadership? What are things that you truly hold in high esteem? Secondly, I mentioned this last week, do you live in harmony with biblical leadership? Do you support your pastor? Do you support your church's leadership as they make decisions, as they seek to serve God well? Thirdly, are you striving to live as a leader? How is God working in your life? How is God working in your unique situation as you want to serve him. And then lastly, do you hold fast to the word of God? That's such a, there's so many different qualifications we could end on. All of them are important. All of them are inspired by God. But I pray that we would be people that hold firm to the word of God as it is taught. People who love the Bible and God's message through it.